0: And now, please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Did you hear? Did you hear that the rabbi is coming to town? You look up at your friend, Jacob, who just came in the house. His face is beaming with excitement. No, I hadn't heard, you respond. You mean the rabbi from Nazareth? The one who's doing all those miracles whom you keep talking about? Yes, that one. Come on, let's go meet him. You look at the few things that still need to get done. You take a deep breath and decide they can wait. Grabbing your cloak in case it begins to get cold, you follow Jacob, who's already out the door. The streets of Jerusalem are thronged with people, even in the waning hours of the day. It always gets this way the week of Passover. Jews come in from all over the world to celebrate the great festival. But this year, something feels different. There's a tension in the air that is palpable, as though something major will happen. You catch a glimpse of the faces on the, of those around you, and you realize you're not the only one who has this premonition. It's a short walk up the hill to the temple. From there, you and Jacob squeeze through the crowd to get to the other side of the city gate. There are people everywhere. They line the road from the city down to the Kidron Valley and up again to the Mount of Olives. As you squint with your eyes, you can see a figure slowly making its way down from the Mount. Is that him, you wonder? Is that the rabbi that Jacob keeps talking about? Before you can think any more on the issue, Jacob grabs your hand and leads, more like drags you along the road. Finally, you manage to get close to the road where you have a good view. People are cheering, some even delirious. Looking around, you notice the variety of clothes and complexions from people from far off lands. Many of these pilgrims, of course, have not had the chance to bathe in a while. But the odor doesn't bother you. You're transfixed by the scene, the street theater unfolding before you. As the rabbi gets closer, you notice he's riding a donkey. The symbolism is not lost on you. The prophet Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey. He also said that the coming day of the Lord would begin on the Mount of Olives. Could this man be the one? Across the street, you notice Sarah. You can see the pain. Sick. You know how hard she has been praying for a miracle. Something, anything that might save her mother. You know what brought Sarah there. Maybe, just maybe, this rabbi might be able to cure her mother. If she could only touch him, call out to him, who knows what could happen? There were stories of such healings happening in Galilee. Will another happen for Sarah's mother? You shake the image of Sarah's mother out of your head and look back up at Jesus. Up the road, you hear one person audibly scream, Hosanna, above the din you realize that it's your younger brother's friend, Seth. Seth is always going on about the Romans, about how much he hates the Romans. To be frank, Seth has good reason for his hatred. His parents had to give up their small farm not far from Jerusalem because of the increase in taxes. The Romans keep raising taxes to support the soldiers who keep the Jews under close watch. Before meeting Seth, you never realized how far along the plans actually were for a true revolt. Turns out there's zealots everywhere. You imagine that Seth is far from alone in this crowd. Is this rabbi really the Messiah? Is he the new King David? Will he be the one to lead the zealots in their their revolt against Rome? You hear others shouting to the rabbi about King David Was the violence going to start that day? You nervously look around. There are a few Roman soldiers up by the gate of the city, and you can see the glint of their spears in the falling light. You hear that the governor, Pontius Pilate, had come to the city with a detachment of soldiers, just in case. Involuntarily, you shudder. As Jesus keeps making his way down the road, you notice someone else you know or you think you know. You're trying to remember her name. The name Ruth keeps coming to mind. She's easy to recognize because she's always outside the temple praying. She's a part of some splinter sect. There are so many different Jewish groups these days, each wanting the faith to go in a different direction. The Sadducees are corrupt. You've heard it a hundred times. The high priest, he sold out to the Romans. The faith is not what it once was, not what it should be. You know that some hope that this rabbi, Jesus, will somehow usher in a change. But how? How would it happen? What would it even look like? You wonder whether Ruth and her friends ever thought about that closely. But nevertheless... There she was, hoping for a renewal of religion. Then there's your friend Jacob beside you. Ah, Jacob. You've known him for years. One of the best souls you've met. But also one of those people who has pie-in-the-sky ideals. Jacob's convinced that the coming day of the Lord is near. Peace will come, he says. Sure. All will be provided for. You just wait. Every time Jacob goes on about the coming kingdom, you let him talk. The son of man coming in the clouds. You know that that's why Jacob's here. He thinks this this might be the time. That's why you know so much about Zechariah and the donkey and the Mount of Olives. Jacob never seems to stop talking about it. Suddenly, the man next to you yells out, "Hosanna! Save me!" It means, "Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord." Some farmers are pulling are putting branches in the road. Others laying their cloaks before the rabbi. Should you, while you're debating in your head what to do with your cloak, you bump into the man next to you. He's an older man. No one you recognize. He looks you in the eyes and asks you a simple question. Why are you here? What brought you out today? It's a great question. What do we make of Palm Sunday? It's one of those stories we hear every year. Every year we wave our palms and hear about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem for the final week of his life. It's a scene that's full of expectation. But expectation for what? What? What is going through your mind as you stand on the side of the road and watch the rabbi from Nazareth pass by on his donkey? Why are you there? So much of the answer to that question depends on the sermons that I've been preaching during Lent. Our expectations for a Messiah depend on what we think about God. How does God work? What can we expect? What can we hope for? Let's say you're someone who believes in process theology. You like that perspective. It makes intuitive sense to you. You see all of reality as a series of actual occasions, discrete moments in the process of becoming. God is the source of novelty and creativity in each actual occasion. God is also affected and shaped by each actual occasion. So is it reasonable to hope for healing? Like Sarah for her mother? as you see Jesus pass by. For for a process theologian, God doesn't heal as though God is some cosmic doctor. God doesn't make illness miraculously go away. But God is present in the body of one who is sick. God's presence might not take away a cancer diagnosis on its own, but it might help the body to heal itself. The human body has a remarkable capacity for healing. Sometimes patients do recover from illness, in ways that leave doctors wondering. For a process theologian, God is present when that happens, and when it doesn't, God is still present, and in the midst of the pain that the patient and those who love the patient feels. God is there, really there. Even in death, God is present, wholly and fully, and is affected by that death. However, a process theologian is one who would reject the violent overthrow of the Romans. The way of the zealots, like Seth, whom we saw earlier in the crowd, is not the way of God. God is not a God of violence or destruction. God's a God of healing and wholeness. While it might be good and laudable to hope for the end to oppression, God's presence does not lead one to kill or harm to bring that about revolution even political revolution for process theologians is about convincing others to change their ways it focuses on preaching love and compassion in the face of oppression it's about offering support to those who are oppressed a process theologian very much would claim that god wants wants the religion wants to have true religion and not corrupt practices There's hope for Ruth, the woman I mentioned earlier. That change wouldn't come through violent coercion, but by love and compassion. God does keep religion vital because God is there. True seekers after God will form their religious practices and rituals to be in line with God. True religion works for justice. It brings healing. It involves worship that grounds us in God and unites us with our fellow human beings and process theologians do not see the coming kingdom of god as a violent inbreaking of some supernatural force as your friend jacob does process theologians do not do not look for the son of man literally to to arrive in the clouds the coming kingdom is something that bubbles up from within people it happens when humans listen to the lure of love that comes from god within us As you can see, how you think about God has everything to do with how you approach a day, a scene, an experience like Palm Sunday. Theology changes and molds the hopes of those who wait by the side of the road for Jesus. Now let's say, on the other hand, you're a Christian existentialist like Paul Tillich. What might you say to Sarah and Seth and Ruth and Jacob, our characters we met earlier? What would a Christian existentialist expect for healing, for justice, from oppression, for true religion, or for the coming kingdom? For a Christian existentialist, God does not heal people who are ill. That is a question of nature and science. But what God does do is provide the support for one who is going through illness, or for those have to watch, who have to watch their loved ones go through illness— those who are ill can be racked by so many internal concerns, worries about their life and how it was lived. Various regrets keep into, creep into someone's mind. God can provide peace, true peace, to face illness or even death with courage. Christian existentialists most certainly don't believe that God works to overthrow oppressive regimes. What God does do is to give people the courage to live authentic lives in the face of oppression. Oppression so often seeks to dehumanize others, to make people think that their lives don't matter. God reassures people living under oppression that they are worthy. God helps people not to despair and to still reach out in love to others, even when that seems impossible. Think of those who were able to show care and love even at a place like Auschwitz. In a situation like that, you need God to remain human, truly human in the face of pure evil. Christian existentialism existentialists have a have a powerful framework for confronting bad religion. Bad religion occurs when people seek meaning and purpose in things that are not God. Bad religion turns worship of God into worship of a political party or a building or a charismatic leader. Those things are demonic. They are not rooted in God as the ground of being. And they need to be called out as such. And like process theologians, Christian existentialists do not believe that the Son of Man will appear in the clouds to suddenly turn this world upside down. Instead, the coming kingdom appears in kairos moments, those moments when the presence of God becomes communal, and we see real change for justice appear, as we did during the civil rights movement in the early 1960s. That is an example of the coming kingdom of God. Do you see how Christian existentialism would shape your view of Jesus riding on a donkey? Do you see how it structures your expectations? of what you should hope for and how to seek it out? Let's say you take the perspective of someone like Rudolf Otto and construct your belief in God around numinous experiences, those experiences where you feel the mysterium tremendum of God. Numinous experiences happen all the time in the face of illness and death. Think of when you saw God appear in the simple gift of flowers or a card. Sometimes there's a depth to those gifts that defies logic and speaks to something deep inside. Think of the odd coincidences that happen sometimes around death when you feel the presence of one who has died in a way that speaks to God's presence in your life profoundly. Consider what can happen when, in the face of death, family members can reconcile, forgiveness can occur. occur. In those moments, God's numinous presence fills the room and changes lives. It's not necessarily about healing, but about God's presence and its capacity to uplift, sustain us, and transform us. While someone like Rudolf Otto would not say that God is in revolution, he would say how God's presence can and does appear when people work together for justice— I think of those great stories of the civil rights workers singing hymns in prison. Even there, God is present and they could feel it. Feel the numinous presence of the divine lifting their voices together, even when hatred surrounded them. The same is true for the search for true religion or the hoped for kingdom of God. For Rudolf Otto, it's the numinous presence of God that makes religion vital. Religion that lacks that will die of its own accord. And when God's presence appears, it can feel, really feel, as though a new age is dawning. You can look back and say, did you feel that too? Did you feel God present in a profound and ineffable way? I was there. I was part of that. These experiences defy easy categorization or logic, but they have power. If you were someone who looked for God in the numinous, how would that change how you saw Jesus on the donkey on that first Palm Sunday? Could you feel it in the crowd, that presence of the divine? And how would it change you? The question I would say for us on Palm Sunday is to ask ourselves why we are there at the side of the road. What brings us there with our palm branches and our hands? What expectations and hopes lead us to leave behind what we were doing and seek out that rabbi. What is it for you? And what do you look for in God's appearing? What makes sense for us today, in the 21st century, when we read this story anew? We're in the waning days of a global pandemic. This year has been a rough year on so many of us. It has left us isolated, depressed, stressed out. Some have lost jobs and had difficulty paying rent. Others have lost loved ones. We all seem to have lost a year. year. We are tired, exhausted, and frayed. And we come to the side of the road this Palm Sunday seeking support. God won't have the virus miraculously disappear, but God can give us the support we need. God can work through us, through our bodies and our minds in each actual occasion and lead us to healing internally. God, the ground of our being, can give us strength to be ourselves when we can't find that strength elsewhere. God can surprise us with God's amazing presence and the random interactions of life. But we have to seek that out and be open to it. We have to turn to God. We have to make that choice. That's what we do when we come to the side of the road outside Jerusalem. Maybe now you're someone who's in need of meaning and direction in life. The past year has tossed so many things that we used to cling to up in the air. We feel discombobulated, detached, adrift. The normal things that gave us purpose and grounding seem to have disappeared. Now that we're coming out of the crisis, how can we find our new normal, our new direction? We can turn to God. There is meaning and purpose there in life. We have so much to accomplish together as a congregation. We are in the midst of a visioning process that will guide us forward in the years ahead. We are asking where God is calling us today, now, and in our context. It's energizing. It gives us meaning, purpose, direction. We have the chance to change things, to bring about a portion of God's kingdom. All we have to do is look for God's appearing in big and small ways in our life. Every framework for God that we have examined speaks to the nature of God. God gives us meaning. Let us seek it out. Look to the one coming down the road on the donkey. He has the answers, even after the Hosannas die down. Now then again, perhaps you have been someone who has found yourself in dark valleys this past year. Dark valleys where you have acted In ways that you regret. You've not cared for those around you in the ways that you wish you should have. The stress of it all has brought out the worst side of you. You feel guilty and justifiably so. Where can you find renewal? Where can you rediscover your best self? I'll tell you where. At the side of that road to Jerusalem. God offers you a chance for forgiveness. God forgives you. Your best self flows out of your relationship with God. Whether that that be through God working within you, or God as the ground of your being, or the God you find in the numinous experiences of life, God will lead you to new life. Following Jesus will lead you to new life. Come and see. Palm Sunday is indeed a day of expectations. It's a day when we consider what expectations make sense with our theology of God Who is God for us and what can we expect from our relationship with God? It's a day when we ask ourselves why we have come to the side of that road. What promise does that rabbi hold for us? In the week ahead, the week ahead will take us down the dark paths of human nature, down the path of betrayal and abandonment and death. But that is not where it ends. When we come with our palm branches, we know that, we eagerly await it. Boldly step forward and cry out, Hosanna, save us. And this time, know what you're asking for and why. That expectation has the power to transform the scene and make it alive for you again as though, as though you are really there.